right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rock and rocking out. So a brief overview of this evening's episode will include the intros and hellos, followed by new news, then the meat and potatoes of this episode, Christmas. And this is going to be through the eyes of a geologist, so we're going to examine some Christmas traditions and how they came to be and try to provide, well, hopefully a little bit of geology context concerning the topic. So between the bars of our main discussion, we present to you another must listen. <laughs> oh my God, I'm already giggling. Mineral minute. <laughs> Okay, then before signing off, we'll close things out with some Christmas songs and our very own 12 Days of Geology in our final <laughs> That Freaking Rocks of Season 1. So a big thank you to all of our listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs, both to our new listeners and our returning listeners alike, and for you spending your time with us each week. If you'd like to reach out to us, whether it be for episode ideas, answers you're wanting answered, or if you fancy being a guest or just want to tell us about all the times that we have misspoke, <laughs> You can reach us at geologyotr at gmail.com, or you can simply find us on Instagram at geologyontherocks. As always, I'm your host, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggins. And this is Geology Geology on the the Rocks. Rocks. Well, hey, man. Hey. Another week. How are you doing, man? Doing well. How was your week? My mustache, I think, is still (laughs) rocking. If you see a little bit of, I don't know, whatever this is around my eyeballs, I started uh, (laughs) (laughs) anti-aging. I started dosing myself with anti-aging cream. Nice. Uh, Yeah. I think, uh, is it like this clear gel stuff? Yeah. So it's like a prescription grade retinoid cream. Yeah. So it's not like the retinol because I think like chemistry, there's a difference between like retinoid is like the pure vitamin A and then the retinol is some kind of something of it, but then it has to like seep in your skin and then it converts into retinoid. Wow. I don't know. Isn't seep just such a nasty word? Seep. It sounds seedy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hold on. Hold on, sir. Let's, uh, let's cheers. (laughs) That was a good cheers. Really good. Yeah. So, um, we can, I I think today it's good. We're going to have another breakdown. (laughs) So, well, this is, uh, actually, this is going to be our last episode for season one. And again, I want to, uh, say that I'm sad, but I'm also happy at the same time, sad because we're closing up shop for a few weeks. I mean, we say like, oh, until next year, like (laughs) maybe we'll start in August again. No, we'll, I think back in January 10th, we're going to start recording again, somewhere around that second, third week. But really like, thanks for the response. And we've had a lot of good discussions on via email or Instagram with people. And it's, it's nice to know y'all are listening and staying tuned and correcting us when we need it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're up to like, maybe like 130 repeat listeners now. Yeah, that's that's bad. That's, I, I think that's pretty season. cool. Something, you know. But then I want to say thankful to you, Mr. Baggins, for coming along with me on this crazy thing called Geology on the Rocks. Thanks Cheers again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. No, it's it's been a lot of fun. Like this is <laughs> something that, you know, it's kind of like music. It was kind of like an inside my head creations. And yeah. then it coming to life. Now we have, we're rocking out our uh, Geology we on are. the Rocks sweatshirts. Yeah. So. It's pretty cool. Shall we get into new news? Shall we? All right. Spiders. I absolutely hate spiders. I've I've come to like them now. Like I would have no problem if you had a tarantula in the house and it was crawling on my face. Yeah. So like I respect them (laughs) from afar. (laughs) Like there's no way I'm having a tarantula. Like my kids can just F right off. Nope. (laughs) So these scientists took spiders to space. Like no. 
and <laughs> they let them do their thing in the space station. But what they figured out, I guess there were two sets of experiments. One was like 2011 or something like, maybe it's 2008. And they didn't contain the spiders well. <laughs> the spiders were like competing and oh, building all these webs. No. And the fruit flies got out of hand and like they couldn't even view <laughs> the web making of the spiders because the fruit there were so many fruit flies. So they actually, they can actually, so you're telling me that they can make like, so how does that work? So they're making the web in outer, like how do yeah. they do that with no gravity or I guess? Right. So here they rely on gravity and it's asymmetrical. And so the center actually is closer up to the top and the mm -hmm. spider will sit up at like what we call the top of the web. It'll come down quickly to the center, but in the absence of gravity or in like a microgravity, yeah. they use light. What? Light okay. is what they orient with and they don't need gravity. They can then build a perfectly symmetrical web. So then I guess what you're saying is so like before they would use the gravity, so they'd sit at the top and they'd be able to use gravity. So they use like light source nowhere, or I guess that's where they're orientating themselves. Yeah. Which is interesting. I thought of that and I was like, okay, well like light waves and then they have like the light particles, right? That they like, yeah, there's all sorts of different ways that light can manifest. Yeah. So I'm wondering if this is like a particle version that they're able to sense or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. So uh, this is completely tangential right here, <laughs> but like there's two physicists that are coming up with something to compete with the general relativity theory of relativity. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I feel like it's out of, out of the Christmas spirit. I'm just going to start us off with a uh, random Christmas fact. So did you know Christmas was actually banned in America? What? <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> the, the pilgrims that came over to America or the separatists, if you will, those, those, those pesky separatists that uh, came to America in 1620 were even more orthodox than your typical Cromwellian Puritans. <laughs> As a result, Christmas was not a holiday in early America. And then in fact, in Boston from the year 1659 to 1681, that the celebration of Christmas was actually outlawed completely. So anyone exhibiting any of the Christmas spirit was fined <laughs> wow. five shillings. Okay. So every but, time I hear shillings, I think of the, like the, the Disney Robin Hood. Yes. Alms, alms, little. Yeah. Robin Hood and little John. Um, well, I have a little Christmas, kind of Christmassy fact. Okay. Okay. So, so door wreaths, they've been around since ancient Greek and Roman times, but the evergreen Christmas wreath, you know, those boughs of holly. Uh, raw, 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 raw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they eventually took on a Christian meaning with the circular shape representing eternal life in the holly leaves and berries symbolic of Christ's crown of thorns and blood. Okay. Today's wreaths, they come in many varieties. I've seen some pretty naughty ones. Actually, it's pretty funny. I'm going to see, I'm gonna have to see yeah. these. Today, it's like flowers to fruit to glass balls, ribbon, artificial and themed. They're just, now it's mainly like a secular winter tradition. Nice. Yeah. Nice. All right. So what we're going to do today, everyone, ladies and gentlemen out there, today's entire episode, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about geology and oh, Christmas. Yes. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea of tonight's episode. So we're going to talk about uh, the seasons. Then we're going to talk about, what are we talking about next, Brian? Coal. And then we're going to talk about the North Pole, then Mineral Minute, and then we're going to talk about reindeers. Yeah. And then we're going to talk about Christmas tree sustainability, and then that freaking rocks. With that being said, now now that we've uh, situated ourselves, so the first topic that we're going to talk about is the seasons. The change of the seasons is one of those things that I'm sure most people really out there probably take for granted. They know it happens, but may not stop to think about why we actually have seasons. I thought this would be a perfect yeah. place to start since tonight's episode is Tis the Season. 
seasons. So the main reason why we have seasons is because of Earth's tilt relative to the orbital plane. Yeah, we can we can imagine that the orbital plane is uh, like if you took a flat sheet of paper, right? put our sun in the middle of the sheet and then all the planet revolving around the sun on the same sheet of paper, you're looking at flat. Like, yeah. Yeah. But Earth is not completely perpendicular as in the equator is not directly centered on this plane. Rather, it's it's tilted a bit. Yeah. The tilts, it's believed to be due to the impact of the Mars-sized object we talked about hey, what? in that episode, the creation of La Luna. Yeah, La Luna. <laughs> <laughs> Once Earth balanced out, it settled at the 23.5 degree angle that we know of today. So you know what's fascinating, Brian, is like all of, see, everything keeps coming back to like all these different stories. So yeah. I, mean, I mean, I think that's really, that's really cool. So like why this is important to seasons, I think is because that half of the planet is to be pointed towards and away from the sun half of the year. When it's at its maximum, there are degrees of latitude that I'm sure that we're familiar with. And these are known as the tropics of Cancer and the tropics of Capricorn. So the Cancer is in the Northern Hemisphere, Capricorn is in the Southern Hemisphere. And since we are in North America, I guess when we talk about things, when it comes to this, our frame of reference is gonna be North America. So let's start with the equinoxes, if you will. There are times when the equator is perpendicular in 90 degrees. So you said that on that plane that it's not completely it's not 100% at the equator uh, right. year round. So it's going around this uh, plane at the equino equinoxes. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So these, these are times where the equator is actually going to be, it's the time of year where it's perpendicular or 90 degrees to the sun's rays coming in. So the equinox simply is just, I think it literally means equal nights. Yeah. So you have equal nights, equal days. So this is exactly what we see on earth. It's when we see it's really going to be receiving 12 hours of sunlight and 12 hours of darkness. This is true at the poles too. And this this really is going to happen twice a year. So we have the vernal and the spring equinoxes happens for us around March 21st, right? So that's the vernal or spring. Yeah. And then the autumnal equinoxes or the fall occurs on September 21st. And then really, so then where we get into uh, the Christmas, so the solstices, right? So we've heard of the, the winter solstice, but these are related to those tropics, uh, uh, those those uh, latitudes, right? So that's what it's, it's when the sunlight is directly over head where um, it's hitting it perpendicular at those tropics. This leads to the sunlight being directly overhead at these 23 and a half degree latitudes. So our summer solstice is when the sun is directly overhead at 23 and a half degrees north latitude or on the Tropic of Cancer. And this happens around July 21st of every year. So the winter solstice is, well, so our summer, our summer solstice is the <laughs> Southern Hemisphere's winter solstice. Yeah. The winter solstice is when the sun is directly overhead, Tropic of Capricorn at 23 and a half degrees south. Since most of the sunlight is in the Southern Hemisphere right now, it is why our days grow shorter until we get to December 21st. At this point, days are growing longer until we get to the equinox. And then the longest day for us is in the summer. And while these mark the, the start of the seasons, it's not the reason for the seasons. So I like to ask this question to my students when such a thing of lecturing inside a classroom. So yeah, most in time, <laughs> <laughs> man, sometimes I miss it or I guess I miss it more often than not now that I'm not actually there. Yeah. Most when I do ask this question, it seems like so most everyone would say, 
it's because we're closer to the sun in the summer and further away in the winter. So what do you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting. It leads to maybe the wrong conclusion. Yeah, um, and exactly the right. reason is like Earth is farthest from the sun in July every year and closest in December. So the closeness is actually incorrect. So I feel like I always play the bad, bad <laughs> person. Um, so also when it is I'm summer. I'm cold about you and I'm the evil one. I'm cold about cobalt. <laughs> oh God. So when it's summer up here, Northern Hemisphere, winter's yes. happening in the Southern Hemisphere and vice versa. If the reason for the seasons was solely due to our proximity to the sun, then it should be warm in both the Northern and Southern Hemispheres at that same time of year. That doesn't happen. No. It's really the tilt that's the main reason for the season. Yeah, no. So like, I think that's, I think that's really important part to uh, distinguish right there is that I know people will say, oh, we're further away from the sun and, you know, or we're closer to it. But if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, like the, the one astronomical unit, what do they call it? AU from like, well, it's one of those (laughs) is like, but we're really far from the sun. So just (laughs) that tilt, you know, that variation in the tilt is not going to really matter. And then if you really think about it, the, the Southern hemispheres summer, it should be a lot hotter than because it's it, what you said, like when we're, I think, what is it? Perihelion, uh, when oh, we're, right. when we're the closest to it, that's like now. So I mean, like they're closest to the sun right now. So I mean, technically their summer should be hotter than ours, but, but. yeah, who knows? <laughs> and then what this leads to is if we go back to the, the air pressure and kind of all of this is that unequal heating of the, of the atmosphere, it's getting heated up. So also the days are longer in the summer so that it leaves yeah. more room for it to heat up because you're having longer days. So it heats up more it's absorbing more of that heat because it's more directed. It's not being reflected off. But anyways, it creates, it's, it changes the weather patterns and all of that fun stuff. So, I mean, it, it, it's really that tilt is the big thing. And I think we forgot to say that whenever it's tilted, that it's pointed in the same direction. You can just think of it in a year. If it's pointing at, you know, 90 degrees north, it's going to stay 90, that, that tilt is going to stay the same year round. Wow. I, that, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. So the point is where that, that tilt, it's tilted in the same direction. And that's, that's so if you see the variation, you just tilt your arm at a 45 orbit. degree angle and kind of put something in between it. You'll see that it's, yeah. it's that tilt. Yeah. So now on to the context of the season. So <laughs> First, let's talk about Christmas. So Christmas, the Christian festival celebrating the birth of Jesus, the English term for Christmas or mass on Christ day is a fairly recent origin. The earlier term Yule may have derived from the Germanic Yol or the Anglo-Saxon Geol. Oh, what? Yeah, (laughs) G-E-O-L. So this is going to, which refers to the Feast of the Winter Solstice. Uh. Huh, that's weird, right? This corresponding terms in other languages, so Navidad in Spanish or Natale in Italian or Noel, all probably denote nativity. The German word... Weihnachten Weihnachten denotes hollowed night. Since the early 20th century, Christmas has always been a secular family holiday observed by Christians and non-Christians alike, devoid of Christian elements and marked by increasingly elaborate exchange of gifts. In secular Christmas celebration, a mythical figure named Santa Claus plays a pivotal role, right? So he comes, (laughs) he's going to come in our story a little bit later on. So Christmas is celebrated on Friday, December 25th, 2020, this year. December 25th, it was first identified as the date of Jesus' birth by Sextus, Sextus Julius Africanus in 221. Is that a BBC? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah, 22, 21 and later became the universally accepted date. One widespread explanation of the origin of this date is that December 25th was the Christianizing of the Dia Solas Invicti Nati. Nati. <laughs> which is the day of birth of the unconquered sun, as in the celestial object. A popular holiday in the Roman Empire, and it celebrated the winter solstice as a symbol of the resurgence of the sun. The yeah. casting away of winter and the heralding, 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 casting away of winter and the <laughs> heralding of the rebirth of spring and summer. Indeed, after December 25th had become widely accepted as the date of Jesus' birth, Christian writers frequently made the connection between the rebirth of the sun and the birth of the sun. Weird, weird how it does that, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I wonder wonder why. So one of the difficulties with this view is it suggests a nonchalant willingness on the part of the Christian church to appropriate a pagan festival when the early church was so intent on distinguishing itself categorically from pagan beliefs and killing some of them. Oh, no, yeah. So like, I feel like <laughs> when it comes to whenever the, the Romans, they all converted over to Christianity and to take in like whenever they were conquering other places to like, oh, well, let's adopt some of your yeah. rituals. Right. 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 And then I think too, like whenever you say like the rebirth and the, the solstice, so the solstice, that is the longest day of the year right. or it's the shortest day of the year after the point of the solstice. And then like, so it was a, a time for festivals too, because what they would do is that that's when they would slaughter their pigs or their, their livestock because yeah. they didn't want to have to feed them over the winter. So they would bring them inside the house or, you know, you would slaughter them. So then you'd have excess of all this stuff. It's also the time whenever they would harvest, right? I guess in the fall. Right. And then at this time is usually when the all the ales and the alcohols oh, would usually kind of yeah. be so this is kind of like when it comes to these festivals and these big celebrations <laughs> it's kind of like and then they would have excess so you know wow yeah fun fact yeah because you're not gonna like when your ale's ready you're gonna plan your festival oh yeah around that yeah like i i go to <laughs> addison oktoberfest every year this yeah. is the first year that i've actually missed it because of stupid kobe stupid Stupid Coley. <laughs> okay, so uh, that was a little bit about, about the seasons yeah. and Christmas in general. So on to subject. What? <laughs> I, I feel for, like <laughs> Donald Trump, like man, woman, TV. Yeah. Good. What were the six words? I don't, he, I don't know. He said yeah, <laughs> he's a stable genius. Yeah. Anyways, we're going to talk about coal. So, have, you ever, have you ever got coal? Did I ever yeah, get did coal? Did you ever get coal for Christmas? Uh, no, but I but I feel like that's one of those, uh, it's those dangling carrots for kids, right? It's like one of those things that oh, you're yeah. always just like, oh, you better do this or you're not going to get. <laughs> You're not going to get your presents. Yeah. It's one of those things, right? I feel like it's one of those psychologically. We still use that and we don't like actually use coal. But I feel like that's what what the companies use that for us. Not like, oh, you do this or you'll get fired. If you don't clock in it, blah, blah, blah. Oh God, I hate all that. So that's like our coal. Anyway, so towards the end of the 18th century, the practice of giving gifts to family members became a well-established tradition. Theologically, the feast day reminded Christians of God's gift of Jesus to humankind and even coming of the wise men or magi to Bethlehem suggests that the Christmas was somehow related to giving gifts. So the practice of giving gifts, which goes back to the 15th century, contributed to the view that Christmas was a secular holiday focused on family and friends. This was one of the reasons why Puritans in Old and New England opposed the celebration completely of Christmas and in both England and America succeeded in banning its observance. And there's not a concrete date that people started associating Santa Claus with coal, but there is evidence that the idea of giving coal to bad kids existed long before our modern 
modern idea of Saint Nick was born. So a number of cultures have their own variations of a mythological gift giver at Christmas. And many of them have a punitive component to their holiday stories. That is, good kids get gifts, bad ones are punished with coal or other <laughs> undesirable objects, and maybe some stuff we can't mention. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> For example... Give uh, us an example. Example. <laughs> near Epiphany in early January, Italian kids receive visits from a witch known as La Befana, who flies around on a broom and gets into people's <laughs> homes via chimney and keyholes. Kids who have been good get candy and small toys in their stockings while naughty naughties get cold. Naughty naughties. They get cold. Yeah, and then in some of these uh, Christmas legends, receiving a lump of coal is the least of the kids' worries. <laughs> so in, in France and in Belgium, for example, St. Nicholas was historically accomplished by a figure known as Pierre Foutard. I don't know if I said, if I'm, <laughs> I'm Pierre Foutard in the name that translates to, that's, I don't know what that was. It's my Melania Trump. That's like on Monty Python when he's like, this is the castle of my master. Okay, so but anyway, so a name that translates to the whipping father. Can you see where this is going? So legend dating to the 12th century has it that started started out as an innkeeper who drugged and murdered school children. And then and then made stew out of them. Sweeney Todd style. Yeah, so St. Nicholas brought the kids back to life and then made Pierre Fousseur his companion. While St. Nick gave out presents to good kids, the whipping father, Pierre (laughs) would give misbehaving children coal, birch branches, and beatings. So we know that giving Christmas coal to naughty kids isn't unique to Santa Claus. But why is coal such a popular punishment in the first place? I think that's a good question. Yeah. I think I know where you're going with this. It simply has to do with convenience. Many of these Christmas figures are in some way tied to fireplaces. Lob and Mr. Claus the chimney as does Black Pete. Dude, that dude up in the, what is it? The Netherlands? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The controversial (laughs) black-faced companion of Sinterklaas. Klaas? The Dutch version of St. Nicholas. (laughs) I love God. St. Nicholas places gifts for kids and shoes next to the fireplace. Thus, if you're a supernatural Christmas legend and you come to the home of a naughty kid, it's just as easy to grab a lump of coal from the fireplace, give it to the kid as a sign that he or she is on notice. Uh oh. Santa Claus comes down chimneys and he needs something to give the bad kid. So he looks around, he picks up a lump of coal and sticks that bad mother in the kid's stocking. So, yeah, like, most countries in Europe were powered by coal in the 19th century, so most households also use burning coal as the main source of fuel, like they did back in the day. In order to keep the house warm, a pan of hot coal was placed under the bed. So in mainland Europe, coal was the staple of Christmas gift to bad kids. However, Father Christmas took a unique approach to Victorian England. Story has it, in England has an interesting story. The lucky children from the poor families got coal in their stockings as they believed that it was a punishment for bad deeds that made their families poor. Yeah, so like I feel like it's more of 
you know, they associate kind of like we do now, like you associate bad words or bad things with like certain groups of people. But I yeah. feel like, you know, if you're poor, it's just kind of like, oh, well, you deserve it. You know what I'm saying? We're yeah, like, we're yeah. like, I, I know there's stories where like the, I mean, if you were wealthy or well off, they got treats, they got candy, they got presents. But I mean, if you were poor, why would getting something that fueled your house be a bad thing? Well, I guess, you know, yeah. I don't know. It's like, heck yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> tiny, tiny. He's like, I, daddy, oh, no. I got you. I got you. I got you a little piece of food, daddy. <laughs> I call from Carbide. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's the, with the voices today. I apologize. Uh, no, it, it's good. Okay. So Cole, Coal is just this combustible black or brownish black. Sometimes it's gross uh, sedimentary rock. So it's <laughs> formed from rock strata called coal seams. So coal is mostly carbon with variable amounts of other elements, chiefly hydrogen, sulfur, oxygen, and nitrogen. Coal is formed when dead plant matter decays into peat and is converted into coal by heat and pressure of deep burial over millions of years. So there's over, over millions of years. So I'm in like, and in between, you keep having this. So vast deposits of coal originate in former wetlands called coal forests. You can think of like swamps and yeah. things of such nature. So that covered much of Earth's tropical land areas during the late Carboniferous and Permian time. So that's where a lot of these coal are going to be originating from. Yeah. However, <laughs> many significant coal deposits are younger than this and originate from the Mesozoic and Cenozoic eras. Yeah. So coal has, I guess, four official forms and it's, these are going to vary and the sequence is how much carbon content they have and how much energy and energy we're going to define as heat and pressure primarily heat you mentioned peat that's the precursor to coal so it is it's what looking down the road peat will eventually once buried turn into different grades of coal so the lowest grade of coal is lignite you can find that all over like in texas a lot yeah. of our, like you said cenozoic sediments there's a lot of lignite and yeah it's the brown coal least amount of carbon next grade up sub bituminous bituminous bitch bitch yeah so like whatever i teach us <laughs> yeah. for them to like kind of get on the right track i'm always say bitch you must there that, that's great bitch you must sub but it's bitch you must bituminous <laughs> bituminous uh, it's a lower grade, 35, 45% carbon, but it has a really high water content, 15 to 30%. And actually this, the sub bitumus, <laughs> if it's not packaged correctly, it can actually combust. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. Then the step up. You mean up, like, like, uh, what do they call it when you, uh, spontaneously, spontaneously combust? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. That's what it does. Nice. Next step up is just bitumus. Bit bitumus. <laughs> I can't even say it the right way now. Bitumus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is mid-grade. It's the most common type we use here in U.S. for electricity generation. It appears shiny and smooth. It's black, but it does. you can still see these visible layers in it. After that, when you get to really high grade, you're going to get to anthracite. And it's hard. It's brittle, black. It's lustrous hard coal is really the other name for it. Yeah, yes. no, it, it looks really cool. Like if you flick yeah. it, it sounds like hollow. Yeah. But, but it's super light. It it's, looks like it would be heavy, but it's really light. Yeah, like... We, anytime you see some black geologic object, you're like, this is going to be heavy as hell. Yeah. And then you're picking yeah, up Yeah, no, you're not, not with this stuff. No way. No. Yeah. It's got really high fixed carbon content in a low percentage of volatile matter. Just some quicks on coal. Heating is primary control of coal formation. I brought up the word grade earlier. Yeah. It is a misconception to think of coal as a metamorphic rock. But anthracite is a metamorphic rock. That, yeah, and I've heard that, but but then I've like, 
like we've talked about before, like people like, ah, no, like we can't call it that. But I, I don't understand why it wouldn't because you have to, yeah, it, it'll like, eventually, it, at first it would have to be the other grades, right? Unless it's very suddenly buried so deep, but. No, I think it is because it's subjected to enough heat and pressure that it changes it. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I don't know, like I was, I was reading some USGS stuff and they were like, don't call it that. That was like in the notes, oh, really? but, but it, I, I agree with you. I, I think it, that high grade, it would have to be. The other ones are not because it's it's changing organics into what we have inorganic there. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a sedimentary rock. Yeah. Cause the other yeah. ones are, are considered and uh, they're like the, the chemical, like uh, the, anyways, they're not, they're not the detrital sedimentary rocks. Right. Right. Heating in metamorphics is primary control and that's going to control the grade on average one degree Fahrenheit per 70 ish to a hundred feet deep is the ratio. So okay. you're going to increase temp per that depth range. So it's that geothermal, oh, it's, it's whatever the thermal gradient. Right. Okay. Exactly. So deeper it's going to be buried. It's going to be exposed to higher temps and it's going to be a higher grade. And so then, so I just, I don't want to throw you off when we're talking about grades. Is this the output that it's giving in like the, the BTUs? Yeah. Like the grades. Exactly so yeah. like when you think of coal, uh, I don't think we brought it up, but it's whenever you're converting that to energy, it's, and then it's also like what it's releasing too. So like the anthracite coal burns a lot cleaner. It's not releasing those harmful things. Yeah. And then the, so if you go down, is that the British thermal unit? Is that, I think so. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's just, yeah. Cause like you said, it, it's not going to throw off these like dangerous gases basically, but it's because that has been expelled from when it, once it's formed. So it gets squeezed out. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And that deep burial is one mechanism, but also can occur through contact metamorphism. So you have a granitic body coming through and it's going to heat up the country rocks and yeah. Yeah. And that's, so, isn't that's how uh, marbles made. Yeah. 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 In the Which is like, why did, why did USGS put that? I don't know. Yeah. That's, so uh, I don't know. I may have to write them an email. Tell uh, them to roll, damn it. <laughs> Similar to contact metamorphism, other heat generation is caused by hydrothermal fluids. And when this happens, so once coals form like methane and carbon dioxide are expelled. Yeah. From- because like, but again, with all of that, it it's carbon that's going into it. Yeah. So whenever it's burned, it's going to be releasing the yeah. carbon back out. So, I mean, like, so, I mean, in a, in a way it is a, a source or a sink. Yeah. And then it eventually will release. Okay. Yeah. That's, so yeah, it's a little bit on coal. So coal. So that's the, the geological context of coal. <laughs> that kind of segues into our next topic. We were thinking about like, what could we do Christmas wise? And we were thinking of like, well, where would Santa get his coal up in the North Pole? He's, he's not going to like nowadays, right? Like we could use the excuse of, oh, well, it's in everybody's <laughs> house. Yeah, but not anymore. <laughs> no. we, don't, we don't have coal to put in. Yeah. We don't have it like, oh, unless like you have briskets of coal. To, okay, but, like, well, but no, yeah. no, but you usually use that to cook. <laughs> yeah. So we figured, you know what? Maybe Santa actually has a coal deposit. We did a little looking around and there's an island out there in the Arctic called Zvalbald. 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 from Zvalbald. The Norse, man. Like, what the heck? Uh, it's a cold, dark island in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. It's about 60, 650 miles. Uh, 
Wait, stories it's by Brian. <laughs> so it's 650 miles to the south from the North Pole. Uh, it's about halfway to Norway. And this island is glacier capped, of course. <laughs> yeah. But why is coal up there? Like, you wouldn't expect for a lot of things to grow and then get buried and then grow and then get buried. It's just not the place for that. Yeah. So thinking why out there before we tell you, how do you think coal got up to these islands near the North Pole? Hmm. Well, I'll tell them. Okay. Structure. No, wait, don't tell them. Oh, okay. Never mind. See you later, guys. Thank you for another episode of (laughs) geology. No. (laughs) Structure and tectonic history is the reason for that. And so there were three big events that happened when Zvabald was on is on a line of mobile plate margins. Okay. It was once at the equator and that's where you have a lot of lush life growing, right? Like there in like subtropics. So it like these humid environments, all this plant matter accrued there and then it would get buried by different flood events and uh, transgressions of seas and whatnot. But when tectonics activate, they split like of different, like this has happened like three times, mega continents, the migration of all these organic rich sediments on this island moved north. And this was in the Devonian period. This time, like you also had different climates, like icy Antarctica was desert hot at the time. Yeah. So it, so once once all of Antarctica melts and you know, all of the coastal cities are flooded, like I want to go to Antarctica and yes. research like the what's in the rock record there. I think they found like a 15 carat diamond or no, no, no. I'm sorry. It was 577 carats <laughs> in Antarctica <laughs> recently. Dude, that's- yeah. Weird. It's, that's yeah. amazing. So, so yeah, Antarctica, we got to go there when, when things are melting. I just want to go there in general, just in general. Like, <laughs> yeah, I see like pictures of people doing, they're just like at Antarctica. And I'm like, what? I just want to go there. We need to get a guest of a scientist from Antarctica and they can take us with us. Yeah. Or yeah. they can invite us there and we can do we a do podcast from Antarctica. There we go. That's what we're Antarctica doing. geologist, earth environmental <laughs> scientist. Yes. That's season, uh, probably nine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so all this is going on, but in the early Carboniferous, Zvabald <laughs> crept back into the tropics. So it moves around, comes back, accrues more plant matter in like swamp type areas that you were talking about. And burials started cooking these. And so then lateral erosion up, like once it moved up to where it is now, you're going to have uplift. Like we were talking about, there were three events. There was one later in like Cenozoic, I think. Okay. And it caused like a mass erosion and exposed all the coal, coal beds that are there now. And now that's, there's a mine. The last mine that was there is actually closing down because of flood flooding from glacier melt. Wow. Yeah. So my mom's dad actually like her town, he was a coal miner. Oh, wow. She was saying stuff today. He was like a master, like he would cut the something in the mines, but then once it closed down, it's like, what do you do? do? What do you do? Now you have black lung. (laughs) I got the the black lung. lung (laughs) (laughs) So like, okay, so here's another interesting fact about the North Pole. It's, it's, there's not really a land mass there. Yeah. Except for Santa's workshop. Yeah. And Zabald. Yeah. Zabald. Like, no, but those are like little islands, but like, so for the most parts, when you see the poles, it's, it's going to be sea ice. And then ice we know is a mineral I present to you. Mineral. Mineral minutes. Mineral. Mineral. Mineral minutes. Mm. Mm. Minerals. <laughs>
Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so today's mineral minute is brought to you by the rare hydrated nickel two carbonate <laughs> mineral. I'm like you last week. Oh, oh, why is this one so hard? <laughs> yeah, Widgie Muthalite. That's a chemical formula of NIMG3CO34OH2 and 5 water. <laughs> so this mineral is usually bluish green in color and it's brittle mineral formed during the weathering of nickel sulfite. Widgie Muthalite is most scale hardness. Of 3.5 in an unknown, though likely disordered crystal structure. So, Widgie <laughs> Muthalite was first discovered <laughs> in 1992 in Widgie. <laughs> 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 Could you imagine me? I want to go there. Oh, all this Western Australia type. So, it's okay. <laughs> Widgie Muthalite was first discovered in 1992 in Widgie Mutha, Western Australia, which is to date is only known source. So it's named the following year by the three researchers who first reported its existence, Ernest Nickel, Bruce Robinson, and William <laughs> Mum. Widgie Muthalite occurs as a secondary mineral. It is found overlaying nickel sulfide that has undergone weathering, often in hollow spaces on gas spit surfaces and often exhibiting fibrous and rarely <laughs> massive crystal habits. <laughs> Widgie Muthalite is transparent in hand samples with silky luster and a pale bluish green streak. Widgie Muthalite is brittle and breaks along with fiber contacts. It's observed specific, specific gravity is 3.13 while Widgie Widgie's Widgie's calculated specific gravity is 3.24. So when viewed with polarized light under a petrographic microscope, Widgie Muthalite appears bluish green and does not exhibit pleochrism. It is bioxyly positive and has a high optic angle or 2V angle. When measured perpendicular and parallel to its axis of anisotropy. <laughs> and I saw, can't say it. And I saw trop how do you say it? I can't do it. Anisotropy? <laughs> Tell me. I know this word. I don't know how to say it. Its refractive indices are 1.630, 1.640, respectively. This gives it a birefringence of 0 0.1, 0.010. Anisotropy. <laughs> there, that's it. Anisotropy. Yeah. Uh, why is it? What are this? Blah, blah. Oh. All right. So we look forward <laughs> to next season's Mineral Minute series. Um, so, yeah, that was the end of. Of this season's yes. minerals of the the naughty minerals. Next <laughs> seasons, uh, we welcome in the Florororororo minerals. Florororororo. Mineral minutes. Mineral. 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 Mineral minutes. Minerals. Minerals. Ooh, so widget. <laughs>
<laughs> oh, I'm such a good one to end on with these music. Good right. old Widgie. Okay. All right. So topic <clears> four. <throat> so now we're going to talk uh, a little bit about Rangers, Mr. Brian. Rudolph leading the way in fighting climate change. Who would have thunk it? The origins of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, did you know, is actually originated in 1939 by the, the retail store Montgomery Ward. So the retailer had traditionally purchased and distributed coloring books to children as holiday promotions, but the, the advertising department decided it would be cheaper and more effective instead to basically they wanted to develop their own Christmas themed book in house. The assignment fell to Robert May, a copywriter with a knack for turning a limerick at the company's holiday party. The ad man, however, had difficulty summoning up holiday cheer, and not just because of the date on the calendar. Not only was the United States still trying to shake the decade-long Great Depression, while the rumblings of war grew once again in Europe, but May's wife was suffering with cancer, medical bills had thrown the family into immense debt. Sure, he was pursuing his passion to write, but churning out mail, order catalog copies, about men's shirts instead of penning the great American novel was not what he envisioned himself doing at age 33 with a degree from Dartmouth. Could you imagine like it's yeah. It's just we'll start a secondary <laughs> podcast and it's just going to go to writing Christmas. See if something sticks. So yeah. yeah, so he was given this assignment to develop an animal story. So this this guy, he thought that Ranger was a, a natural for the leading role of this new story. So not to mention that I think what I read in some of the researches that his daughter, whenever they went to the zoo, really liked reindeers. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't ever remember seeing a reindeer at a zoo. No. Maybe because it's, I don't know, Texas and yeah, it's hot as why. Hades. <laughs> so as, <laughs> as he peered out at the thick fog that had drifted off Lake Michigan one night, so he came up with the idea of uh, a misfit reindeer ostracized because of, as, because of his luminescent nose who used his physical abnormality to guide Santa's sleigh and save Christmas. Seeking an alternative name, May scribbled possibilities on a scrap paper. So it included Rolo, Reginald, <laughs> Rodney, and Romeo. Romeo. So uh, we're among the choices, but what he ended up doing was circling his favorite one, and it was Rudolph. Could you imagine it being Rolo the Red Nose Ranger, or Reginald, <laughs> Rodney the Red Nose? Oh, no. Yeah. He must have been hired. Like, what, what do they drink up in the Midwest? Something like. I don't, I don't know. know. Like, yeah. it's probably called, like, uh, I don't know, Baptist water. <laughs> Baptist water. <laughs> we live in Texas. It's like. Those Baptist places. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, okay. Don't dance. Well, yeah, don't do that. The 89 rhyming couplets in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer borrow from Clement Clark Moore's A Visit from St. Nicholas right from the story's opening line. Twas the day before Christmas and all through the hills the reindeer were playing enjoying the spills. Ooh. Yeah. Hans Christian Andersen's fairy tale The Ugly Duckling was also inspired by the storyline as did May's own childhood when he endured taunts from the schoolmates for being small and shy. Okay, so it's like a coming of age. So it's yeah. like the black swan yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. So this store, Montgomery Ward, so had high hopes for its new 32 page illustrated booklet, which would be given for free to children whenever people would come in. So I guess at the time they had around 620 stores and they, they thought that it was exclusive story like this would actually lead to more people coming in, which I think it, it did, I mean, right? Yeah, I guess. 
It even got a movie made. Yeah. The retailer's holiday advertisements touted Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer as the rollicking new Christmas first that's sweeping the country. That wasn't just hype. Children snapped up 2.4 million copies of the paper bound in 1939. Man. Uh, yeah. Jeez. I, like 1939? I was just trying to think like. It's just, I, I think it's like right after, or it's shortly after, I think a decade yeah. after the Great Depression. Plans to print another 1.6 million copies copies the following year were shelled by paper shortages due to World War II. That damn war. I know. God. Rudolph remained on hiatus until the conflict's conclusion. When the reindeer story returned in 1946, it was more popular than ever, and Montgomery Ward handed out 3.6 copies of the book. Only 3.6 copies? Yeah. 3.6 million. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, okay. I'm so used to like, like I won't say units sometimes. Yeah. It's like we're already in the million annum kind of thing. So. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. So yeah, in 1949, the the songwriter, Johnny Marks, who happened to be May's brother-in-law, dude knows people, set Rudolph's <laughs> story to music. After Bing Crosby, he actually reportedly turned down the chance uh, singing or turned to the chance singing cowboy, Mr. Gene Autry, recorded the song, which sold 2 million copies in the first year and remains one of the best-selling tunes of all time. I wish I could sing like that, kind of. You know, like, I know it's like... Uh, well, it's I, just that, like, like it's I just like know, this. It's number <laughs> I'm a yeah, it, but it's got like the deep. Oh, okay, yeah. You know what I mean? Rudolph. Like, I don't know. I don't know either. I don't. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> That's how we want to sing. (laughs) (laughs) The song and merchandise sales made May financially comfortable, but hardly rich. After leaving leaving Montgomery Ward in 1951 to manage the Rudolph empire, May returned to his former employer seven years later. He continued to work as a copywriter until his 1971 retirement. Nice. So that was a a nice backstory, but how does this relate to global warming? Well, uh, first we need to go back north. So the permafrost. So up until now, the permafrost is this frozen layer of the land and soil. But in, you know, recently it's been thawing out and revealing its hidden secrets. So along Pleistocene fossil are massive carbon and methane emissions, toxic mercury, <laughs> and then ancient diseases. Yeah, like they've like bacteria are starting to come out of that. It do, and yeah. viruses. Yeah. It's, like yeah. we're releasing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, wow. Well, the organic rich permafrost holds an estimated one point. No, what is that? Why, why would I? <laughs> it sounds weird. I mean, it'd be like 1.5 trillion. I'll say that. Why don't just 1,500 don't tons or 1,500 billion tons? <laughs> okay, I'll do that. I don't the, know. The organic rich permafrost holds an estimated 1,500 billion tons of carbon. Hey, That's, so Brian. What? What's what I say every time whenever in my classes and I always get eye rolls. So what's the difference between a billion and a million? Uh, zero. A billion has two L's. <laughs> it doesn't fucking make any sense. No. No. What? <laughs> What the heck? Okay. <laughs> Showstopper. Yep. <laughs> Where's given something? Um, this one. <laughs> it's more funny in context, yes, damn it. It is. Okay. A billion has two L's. You'll remember that next time. I will. But I'm like <laughs> noticing I write million with two L's all the yeah, time. No, millions doesn't have two L's. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> 
I'm saying this. I'm holding a bottle of wine. <laughs> like, what the hell? It's like I've been riding millions with two L's my whole life. Am I wrong? <laughs> yeah, I'm like really no. concerned. It's, 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 that's, I'm like sweating. I think that's that's, that's, <laughs> that's the whole point. Is because people are like. What? what are you talking? What? <laughs> yeah, you had me. I need to come. See, it works. It, it works. Did. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. A billion. <laughs> so, 1,500 billion tons of carbon in this organic rich permafrost. That's about twice as much carbon in the atmosphere, three times as much carbon in what's stored in all the world's forests. That's, yeah. I think that's really, that's. I, I, I can't comprehend that. But no, I, not I even a little yeah. bit. About 30 to 70% of the permafrost may melt before the year 2100. Yeah. So I feel like, again, it should go, we should do something about global warming and our carbon emissions. It goes into last week's, like we need yeah. to be ethically, ethically responsible about yeah, it. Yeah, because we're just going to run into another problem. Indeed. It may be more acute, you know? Yeah. So methane and CO2 are not the only thing being released from the once frozen grounds. In the summer of 2016, a group of nomadic reindeer herders began falling sick from a mysterious illness. Rumors began circling around the Siberian plague, last seen in the region in 1941. What happened in 1941 is a young boy and 2,500 reindeer died. So the disease was identified as anthrax. Let me tell you, here we go. Hold on. <laughs> Stories by James. So I, I was in the military in 2005. I spent the entire year in Iraq before we had to get all of these vaccinations and oh, yeah. I had to get six series of anthrax shots. Holy crap. So, cause anthrax is that bacteria that lives in the topsoil and you can get it and <laughs> die. Right. Yeah. So, but I remember getting those shots and it was like almost immediately, like my entire where that, you know, we got injected. It just, it, my whole arm was on fire. Then it just like spread all throughout. Oh. And then like it legit felt like my whole body was on fire. Yeah. And we had to go six rounds of that. That's how I, I picture like a venomous snake bite. I, it may not be like that, but how you're, oh, yeah, no, like, like it just like, just, it, it, and it just, you could just feel it just going throughout your body. So that's sheesh. a fun facts about anthrax. So yeah. it was identified as anthrax. Its origin was a defrosting reindeer carcass, a victim of anthrax outbreak 75 years previously. In 2018, Arctic Report card speculates that the disease actually, diseases like the Spanish flu, smallpox, or the plague that have been wiped out might be frozen in these permafrost areas. There was one study back in 2014 that took a 30,000 year old virus that was frozen within the permafrost and then warmed it back up in the lab and it promptly came back to life more than 300 uh, centuries later. That's so creepy. What if one of these like massive extinction events that we didn't know about was a, a virus? That that's a really good point. Wow. I, I wonder if anyone's thought of this. I don't know, but like, should, I'm sure uh, those people at some point, but like, yeah. right. Wow. I mean, will we see that in, I, I don't see that in fossil record, right? Maybe we'd see like, I in, don't know, like, in copper lights. Yeah. I don't know. Cause they, cause they can tell like in humans, early humans, uh, what their diet was based on stuff. Yeah. I don't know how they do that, but Sheesh. 
But if you go back further, like, was it the viruses? I don't know. I don't know. So yeah, um, the amount of solar energy the earth reflects back is called albedo. Yeah, albedo. albedo. Ice and snow have high albedo as they prevent heat absorption of the sun by reflecting the light and heat back out into space. Yeah. High shrubbery cover will lower the icy tundra's surface albedo and as the reflective ground is not accessible. So that means that higher energy absorption warming, of course, melts will happen. Yeah. So one of the, the most interesting aspects of the subject of the pastoral traditions and the ecological of grazing of the reindeer is and how it relates to this albedo and the source of much confusion and disagreement, I think in some scientific communities is how many grazing animals a landscape can sustain, right? So it would seem to make sense that the, the more animals, the greater the impact or damage that would happen. And most believe that this to be the case, but nature as, as we know, uh, doesn't always work this way. So a study by uh, scientist Alan Savory has shown that it's not the number of animals that leads to overgrazing, but it's rather going to be the time plants are exposed to grazing pressure. Yeah, for example, uh, if cattle hang around the same spot indefinitely, say like by a riverbank, they're going to damage it. Yeah. yeah. Whereas two or three times the number of cattle kept on the move, they're going to probably benefit the land. Yeah, no, I could see that making sense. Because so if you have animals in the same place, you're increasing the the pressure of the local plants because they're just going to continuously eat that and not yeah. down, right? Whereas if you had, let's say you had like 20 cows in the same spot, I think they would overgraze that. But if you had 200 cows, 300, 400, maybe even like a thousand cows, but if you're constantly moving them out throughout the prairie, they're constantly going to be keeping it down. And Yeah, exactly. Right, right. so I mean, like <laughs> that makes sense intuitively, I think. So under wild conditions, ruminants of never stay anywhere long. So nor is animal impact necessarily going to be be a negative thing. So grassland ecosystems co-evolved with ruminants whose actions upon the land stimulate important ecological processes. This scientist came to realize this in the early 1960s as a young game ranger in South Africa. What he did is he observed that when people fence animals away from deteriorating land that that Mm. actually the land's conditions got worse instead of reviving it. Weird. So what about the reindeer? And do they make good ecological sense? Yeah, so I think everything that I've read, reindeer are going to be keeping the landscapes good and cold. So when it comes to the albedo again, which is significant because these northern climates are among the most rapidly warming landscapes on Earth, right? So everything that we hear about global warming, it it may not be really affecting us here, but in the north, in these tundras, dude, I was reading this one article and there's these big, massive craters in the tundra. Have you read anything about that? And it's And they're like, how the hell, what the hell? It looks like bombs are going off. like subsidence? No. Oh, it's the the methane exploding. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's creating like these That's huge, right. massive... Yeah, oh. so this melting of the permafrost threatens to release vast stores of methane and CO2. And then we know that methane, which is what is CH4, it's a hydrocarbon, but it's what it is. I mean, even though it's in smaller concentrations than CO2, that it's molecule per molecule basis, it's much more significant at recapturing that light. Or not not the light, it's the... Have we talked about how the greenhouse gas works? I don't think we In albedo. So if we want to do a little bit of a a backstory real quick. So yeah. light comes in as UV light, right? So UV right. is a is a certain wavelength. Mm-hmm. It comes in and it's going to either bounce back a little bit. It's going to reflect back out into the atmosphere, right? Bounce back off clouds or it's going to bounce off reflective surfaces, right? But that's UV light. And then it's absorbed. Most of it, a lot of it's absorbed by earth. And then earth absorbs it. It re-radiates out heat in infrared. Okay. So, yeah. it, so it's changing the wavelength. So it converts it into infrared as it's releasing this heat. And then what 
these methane and CO2, they absorb that infrared uh, okay. energy just based on the, the angles of the molecules. And Doesn't then- and then that to dissipate. Yeah, yeah, so then what that happens is it gets excited and then it shoots heat back down into, you know, it's, it's just adding to that 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 heat budget. So yeah. if, it's, if it's equal, then you're adding more to it. But so anyways, <laughs> that's a little bit about how the greenhouse and methane CO2 work into the atmosphere. So a research team led by this looks like Dr. Beast uh, of Umia Universidad of Sweden. <laughs> I don't know how to speak Swedish. Yeah. <laughs> found that reindeer browsing and feeding on shrubs during the summer keeps plants growth under control. So this is important because shrubs and small trees have a lower albedo or reflectivity than grassy heath uh -huh. that would otherwise dominate. So the darker colored bushy plants tend to absorb solar energy. Therefore, this is going to accelerate thawing. By contrast, that the, the heath reflects more radiation and so does not take that extra heat. It's keeping the area cooler. According to the study, the effect is likely limited to areas of only high ranger density. <laughs> Culling them could undermine this positive effect. Now, the Nordic Center of Excellence Tundra also notes the climate positive impact of reindeer in a warming world. Grazing is a bulwark against shrubification in that region, which proceeds as warmer temperatures create conditions favorable to more woody plants. By preventing the invasion of trees, tall shrubs and forbs, reindeer maintain the openness of that tundra, which is a precondition for the survival of many small-sized Arctic plant species. Yeah, so I, I think that's really interesting that there is, so the reindeer, in essence, what all of that is, I think, uh, wrapped up is that the reindeer, they're actually eating these these trees that are coming through, right? Yeah. And they're keeping it low enough to where it's keeping that high reflectivity. So it's not absorbing it. So it's keeping the, the area cooler longer. But I've also read reports that that they're changing the biome. Like in some areas, I know because of the, the tundra's changing, but they're also grazing on the lichen. And it's, uh, but I've, right. so I've read it both ways. Some reports yeah. that it's like, it's, it's preventing it, but it's also because they're eating all this lichen and it's bare and then it's causing all these stuff to grow up and then it's changing the the entire biome of it so it's actually leading to I don't know you're yeah, damned if you do damned if you yeah, don't yeah I mean <laughs> you may try to, you may eventually gain equilibrium for a moment somewhere yeah but it's gonna have a take you know it's Something and then I was also else. like in this journey of looking up stuff about reindeer is that it's there's a positive feedback loop when it comes to warming up and they're dying off in troves because it's heating up. So they're just not having any food because they, yeah. they like the whatever it is when it's I don't know. Blah, 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 blah. So those things growing up could be trees. And that leads us into our next point, uh -huh. the sustainability of Christmas trees. None of the contemporary Christmas customs have their origins in this real theological or liturgical affirmations. And most are fairly, you know, recent to date. So the Renaissance humanist Sebastian Brandt recorded in Das Nadernschiff, The Ship of Fools, written in 1940 or 1494, was the custom of placing branches of fir trees in houses even though there's really this uncertainty about the precise date and origins of the tradition of the Christmas tree, it, it really appears that the fir decorated with apples were first known in Strasbourg in 1605. So this is really where we're starting to see kind of this tradition of using fir trees or the Christmas tree. The first use of candles on such trees is recorded by the Silesian Duchess in 1611. And this intense preparation for Christmas that is part of the commercialization of the holiday has really, it's really blurred the traditional liturgical distinction between Advent and then the Christmas season, which we talked about earlier, as seen by the placement of Christmas trees in sanctuaries well before December 25th. Decorated trees date back to Germany 
in the Middle Ages with German and other European settlers popularizing Christmas trees in America by the early 19th century. A New York woodsman named Mark Carr is credited with opening the first U.S. Christmas tree lot in 1851. What? Yeah. Wow. A 2019 survey we read by the American Christmas Tree Association predicted that- <laughs> Did you even know there was such an association? No. <laughs> no. Wow. Predicted that 77% of U.S. households displayed a Christmas tree in their home. I know I did. Among the trees on display, an estimated 81% were artificial and 19% were real. Wow. So Christmas tree farms, we've got to keep in mind it's a business and it seems like it's a pretty big business. They plant trees for every tree they cut down. So this is good. You want to know what that means. You got to think of it in terms of carbon sequestration and air mm-hmm. purification. We can turn it into mulch after Christmas. We could burn it, uh, turn it into art. Who cares? But the the thing is, is that you probably want to avoid throwing it in the landfill because that's where it will emit some harmful gases when it decomposes. And artificial Christmas trees are generally the cheapest choice. They're reusable every year. They're generally more economical long-term than buying a new cut tree annually. An urban myth largely... It's largely propagated by those manufacturers. They claim that artificial trees, if kept for years, can be equally or even more environmentally friendly than real trees. Yeah, so I think they missed the mark on that because the (laughs) the materials that they use to make these artificial trees are hugely problematic for the environment and all of that. So the the claim of superior (laughs) sustainability is simply just, it it really has no basis in the fact of the majority of artificial trees. The Carbon Trust estimates that a two-meter artificial tree has a carbon footprint of around 40 kilograms of CO2 equivalent. Right. So the carbon dioxide plus other greenhouse gases warning potential. So more than twice that of a real tree that ends its life in a landfill and more than 10 times that of real trees that are burnt. Most artificial trees are made from plastic. Yeah. Most often the PVC film, like other plastics, PVC is made from fossil fuels. Yeah. Like that tree right there. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have one. Now I'm like, (laughs) but yeah, so it's made from fossil fuels. We know, and we've talked about it before that that's going to emit high levels of greenhouse gases. Around two thirds of the carbon footprint of an average artificial Christmas tree comes from the plastic that it's made from the metal frame and transportation, which take a lot of energy. I think, people fail to realize that too, the whole transportation. Well, first you got to think of, oh, where do they get the the material to make the pellets, right? Yeah. Then they got to transport that somewhere to get made. Then they got to transport it somewhere else. Then they got to transport it somewhere else and then transport it to the stores. And then you got to transport it. Yeah. So, yeah. so in the past, actually lead was often used as a stabilizer Jeez. in the manufacturers <laughs> of artificial tree needles known to have a range of harmful effects on the human health. This can lead to and pose a danger, not only to workers, but also in its consumers. The use of lead for this purpose is now prohibited in Chinese law with most companies making artificial Christmas trees now using tin instead. This is something to consider if using a sourcing an older artificial tree. So in terms of the carbon footprint, this is undoubtedly a far better option than artificial ones. So the in terms of carbon footprint, again, it's a better option than artificial ones. If it ends up in the landfill, that two meter natural Christmas tree without roots has a carbon footprint of six 
16 kilograms of carbon dioxide over the course of its life cycle, burning the tree or better yet using it as mulch ETC reduces this footprint by up to 80%. Yeah. Christmas tree plantations are fairly good at replacing the trees that they cut down. Many are certified under the FSC system. But you should always look for this little FSC logo when you're buying any trees, timber, paper, or any, really any forest products. The FSC system is you know, it's got its flaws, far from perfect. Don't rely on this logo alone to make your ethical choices. Right. When it comes to anything, paper, or, or really when it comes to your Christmas tree. It's also important to remember that whether or not they're sustainably managed, Christmas tree plantations are not an ecologically sensitive use of land. Right. You see how we always bring it back to, yeah. it's got to be, we got to just keep mindful of what we're consuming. So again, but even with that Christmas tree plantations are not like natural forests by any means. So it's what we call monocrop systems. And like other monocrop systems, they generally require the use of controversial herbicides and pesticides such as glyphosate. While residues may not remain on the tree by Christmas, the jury is still out on their effects on human health. The negative impacts on the environment, however, are increasingly clear runoff into waterways, Mm -hmm. ecocidal effects, insect life, ETC, Therefore, if you're to choose a cut tree, the most ethical and sustainable options are those which are certified organic. We know like these pesticides enough, like it's the, I, what I think of is the up in say Kansas and Iowa where they're, where they do a whole bunch of like farming, like all those fertilizers, I'm sure most people don't think about it, is like that ends up in yeah. the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. It, it doesn't just stop like no. absorbed and go on. No, yeah, it's, no, it, it's passing it on to, yeah. So it's, it's nuts. All of this. <laughs> that or like, we'll somehow get into either drinking water wells or whatever, and you're going to drink it, then pee it out. Yeah. So I, it's, it's yeah. all of this just to yeah. raise awareness. So, well, I guess <laughs> we should conclude things. So yeah. that was the, the last of the real content, man. We've, we've made it 15 episodes 15, and double that. And we'll be at that, that mark. And I'm proud of us for doing somehow <laughs> geology themed Christmas episode. I mean, uh, I like, it. yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot there, but I think like my, my big take for the last few episodes, including this one is just what we consume and yeah. like what we're being mindful of that and not just pointing the finger at what you hear in news. Cause while the news may not be entirely correct, they're not entirely incorrect, but that's not what you can do starts with you. Yeah. And I, the band, my band and I actually had a conversation of that yesterday. We're oh, like, you- what, what, like what metals are in our pedals? And like, oh yeah, we were like, I know that our pedal manufacturers they're not trying to screw stuff over, but they yeah. may not know. Yeah. And so it's my it's, Christmas wish is that everyone thinks about what they consume. Yeah. Just <laughs> conscious. And I think we won't always be this preachy, but it's, yeah. it's, it's like, but it's so fresh for like the past two, the past two it weeks. Is, it's, yeah. it's like, it's like, ah, just be aware. Yeah. Be aware, but also have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, for lease Navidad. Have you seen those, uh, those memes where it's for lease? <laughs> like, you know, those signs that are for lease. And yeah. then at the end of it, it oh, says no. Navidad. <laughs> for lease Navidad. <laughs> okay. So this is going to lead us into... Right. 
this is going to be our last frat freaking rocks for season one, man. I think we can just, just go straight into it because <laughs> today we have a special treat to you, the 12 days of geology from your favorite podcast, but the context for the 12 days of Christmas. So even though most hear the song between Thanksgiving and Christmas, if you were to the, the 12 Christian days of Christmas, which span the birth of Jesus, so it's said, and the visit of the Magi actually takes place from the 25th of December to the 6th of January. So the earliest version of this poem turned song is thought to have been published in Mirth Without Mischief, a children's book in 1780, with the modern version credited to the English composer Frederick Austin, who set the poem to music. We know this as the 12 days of Christmas. Each year, the PNC Christmas price index actually totals up the, the total cost of the 12 gifts named in the song. So, you know, like a, a partridge in a pear tree, yeah. two turtle doves. According to the 2019 figures, everything from a partridge in a pear tree to 12 drummers drumming would actually cost someone... <laughs> $38,993.59. It's nuts, right? So, yeah, I mean, like, expensive. inflation. Yeah. <laughs> a partridge. What is a partridge? That's a bird, right? Oh, I don't know. Is it a, a dove? Little, like, kind of... Okay. Something like that. Or like, <laughs> I think of like a guinea. Or a guinea. Oh no. Oh dude. Look, speaking of guineas, guinea fowls. Oh yeah. Oh wow. That's cool. So that's my dog. Yeah. And then that's the, the neighborhood guinea fowl. It's taunting him. It's called chicken nugget. <laughs> we named him. So, all right. So today we're going to give you the 12 days of geology on the rock style. Forgive us this might. Yeah, this is going to be good. Oh, let's, uh, let's cheers. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. I need uh, something. Right, there's, there's this yeah, little. Uh, yeah, have that, that peanut butter whiskey. <laughs> I will need it for this. Go, 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 go. This is even more daunting than a. Uh, Wrapping? Yeah, last week's wrap. <laughs> I like that thing. <laughs> so he has a little plastic uh, shot. <laughs> I literally do. Okay. Me, 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 me. Should have put Widgie Mooth Oh, God. <laughs> you feel free to throw it in somewhere. <laughs> Okay. Oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so we're we're gonna be alternating this. Yeah, and we are gonna be off key and not reflective of our actual singing voice. Oh no, I can't sing. <laughs> Without further ado, <laughs> we, we give you the twelve days of geology. <laughs> On good. the first day of geology, my favorite podcast gave to me a new episode weekly. <laughs> On the second day of geology, my favorite podcast gave to me two honky hosts <laughs> and a new episode weekly. On the third day of geology, my favorite podcast gave to me three news news, three new news, <laughs> two honky hosts and a new episode episode weekly on the fourth day of geology my favorite podcast gave to me four fantastic guests <laughs> three new news two hunky host and a new episode weekly on the fifth day of geology yes. my favorite podcast gave to me Five mineral minutes. That's four a fantastic guests, three new news, two hunky hosts, <laughs> <laughs> and new episode weekly. <laughs> Butchered that one. On the sixth day of geology, my favorite <laughs> podcast gave to me. Takes that freaking rocks. <laughs> Five mineral minutes, four fantastic guests, three new news, two hunky hosts, and a new episode weekly. On the seventh day of geology, my favorite podcast gave to me seven zircon zoning, hey, six that freaking rocks. <laughs> 
five mineral minutes. Four fantastic guests, three news news. <laughs> Damn it. I keep doing it. <laughs> Two hunky hosts and a new episode weekly. On the eighth day of geology, my favorite podcast gave to me. Eight tides of pulling, seven zircon zoning, six freaking rocks, five, five mineral minutes. Four fantastic guests, three new news, two hunky hosts, and a new episode weekly. <laughs> oh, good luck with this one, dude. <laughs> On the ninth day of geology, my favorite podcast <laughs> came to me. Yes. Nine. The Jack of Philococcus. Can't say it. <laughs> Eight sides of pulling, seven circons zoning, six that freaking rocks, five mineral minutes, four fantastic guests, three new news, two hunky hosts, and a new episode weekly. On the 10th day of geology, my favorite podcast came to me. 10 relatives dating. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think this is a good idea? I don't know. <laughs> All right. 10 relatives dating. 9. I am fussing out to erupting. 10. 8. <laughs> 7. Zircon zoning. 6. African rocks. 5. Five mineral minutes. Four fantastic guests, three new news, two hunky hosts, and a new episode weekly. On the 11th day of geology, my favorite <laughs> podcast came to me. 11 Moai's moaning. <laughs> Why are they moaning? 10 relatives are dating. 9 a chuck of... <laughs> what you said? I can't do it. A jack of focus. Erupting eight sides of pulling, seven circon sodium, six that freaking rocks, five mineral minutes, four fantastic guests, three news, news <laughs> and a new episode weekly. On the 12th day of geology, my favorite podcast gave to me 12 drunken tangents, 11 Moai's moaning, 10 relatives are dating, 9 erupting, <laughs> <laughs> 8 tides of pulling, 7 zircon zoning, 6 freaking rocks, 5 mineral minutes. Four fantastic guests, three new news, two hunky hosts, and a new episode weekly. Oh. I, I, I have no idea why I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I can't say it. A jack of. Uh, no. Whatever that is. Do you remember from yeah, the, the volcano uh, yeah. in Iceland? The fuse of Ashel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Dude, oh my goodness! Well, sir, <laughs> I'm I'm sweaty. Yeah, it's the geology <laughs> on the rocks. But I think that was probably like <laughs> the best way to close out a it's, season. Yes. Oh my god, I was crying. I was crying. <laughs> All right.
Well, all right, everyone. That was another, I think, (laughs) hopefully successful episode of Geology on the Rocks. We hope you enjoyed season one and you stick around and you will uh, stay tuned for uh, season Season two. Season two. Yeah. And that's, it was, that's been a fun little journey that we started back in, uh, back in August. Yeah. Cheers. As always, I'm your host, James, the geologist. And I'm Brian Baggins. Remember to stay cool. Stay tuned and keep Keep it it on on the the rocks. rocks. Hell yeah, dude. Dude, that was so funny. Oh my goodness. I can't even believe it. I'm.